Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Unchurchable. I'd like to warmly congratulate myself for getting two whole episodes published in the space of days. That's a feat I haven't accomplished since 2020. Here in this era of WTF, you celebrate the small things, people, and self-praise is better than no praise. Anyway, I've got a cracker of an episode for you today. What do you get when you get a mental health professional slide into your DMs, introduce themselves, and then say, hey, want to talk about sin? Triggered. That's what you get. There was a little flash of something like anxiety, quickly followed by a bigger flash of awareness that told me I needed to talk about this. Because sometimes when we avoid tough topics, we're also avoiding an area that needs healing. The truth is, like many deconstructors I'm sure, sin is one of my least favourite words. It's one that's been drilled into me since childhood. A bad attitude? Sin. Negative emotion? Sin. Delayed obedience? Sin. Questioning authority? Lustful thinking? Unforgiveness? Blah blah blah? Sin. And the wages of sin is death. And by death we mean eternal conscious torture in hell. What if there was a kinder way to think about sin? One that's bound in a relational worldview. One that takes us right back to the beginning and asks what the word should mean rather than what it has come to mean. As more and more of us seek to understand post-evangelicalism what the Bible actually says and means rather than what has been reduced to mean via centuries of retranslation and cultural overlays, it stands to reason that some of the fundamentals require a revisit too. We don't dive into the hell issue in today's episode. In fact, if there's anyone out there who has a good hold on the theological theories of hell, because yes, there are a few, hit me up. I may just have a spot for you on this here little podcast. But for today, I've got Stephen Denler, aka The Denler, as he's named on Twitter and Instagram. Stephen is a mental health professional, a therapist, a writer who specializes in psycho-relational theology, and the founder of Seattle's Tap Theology, which is definitely a group I'd hang out with if I was from Seattle. By the look of his Instagram, he's also a man who is not afraid of quarantine moustaches, Christmas sweaters, or public displays of cat affection. I'm not going to lie, that kind of tickled me. I'm so glad I decided to write back and say, yes, let's talk about this. It's a reframe I needed. Perhaps it's a reframe you need to. In deconstruction spaces, we far more readily talk about releasing the fear of hell than we talk about what sin is and whether we can live with a high ethical standard without the existential dread tied up with the notion of sin and hell. After this discussion came to an end, I still believe in the notion of sin. I just think about it completely differently. And it's refreshing as heck. I have the Denla and his gentle, thoughtful introspection and theological inquiry to thank for that. So I hope you get up the courage to listen to this episode. I'm certainly glad that I found the courage to do the interview. It was certainly needed. I'm Kit Kennedy and this is Unchurchable. Hello, Stephen Denler. How are you today? Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty great. I'm doing pretty great. How are you today? Oh, oh look, good. Um, it's lockdown in Melbourne, uh, Melbourne, Ooh. Australia, and it's, you know, it's, it's a fun time, but uh, I see you're there. You've got your bike in the background. You've got a pint of something off to the side, and it looks like you're set for a good interview, huh? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> now, look, you're, you sent me an email after I interviewed a friend of yours, um, Jordan, from Lost Things Band, and I was really fascinated with what you had to say because um, it's a topic that 
a lot of deconstructing Christians, post-Christians or whatever we like to call ourselves, uh, find a little bit difficult. It's the topic of sin. How did you get into something so heavy? <laughs> uh, I think for me it really started out and actually first i get to hang out with jordan tomorrow so shout out to jordan i'll be in sacramento so i get to see that guy how good the idea that you can hang out outside of the house at all is just offensive to me right now but like (laughs) i am very thankful to be in the city of seattle in the midst of all of this i think our vaccination rates at like 80 percent right now so wow um, yeah something to be thankful about Melbourne's not doing that well in terms of vaccinations, I don't think. It's, yeah, Australia's, Australia's in a bit of a situation. Like we've got states shutting their borders and, you know, 13 million people in lockdown in a nation yeah. of like 25 million. So, um, yeah. yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a thing. But, but anyway, it's the world we live in. <laughs> The world we navigate. Yeah. So tell me a a bit about yourself and a bit about how you, you know, the space that you've ended up in thinking about big, heavy topics like, yeah. Like like sin. sin. Like sin. Yeah. Um, I'm a mental health therapist. I grew up in the church, Mm -hmm. Um, like went to preschool in church, went through the ranks. I actually, I loved church. Yeah. Uh, grew up with it and it always had a really great experience with it and then went to college and um, didn't have the same experience with churches anymore than the community that my the church that I grew up in kind of really fostered and yeah. that was kind of that like wait a second like what is this um, but when it came to the concept of sin I think what started me on the journey of kind of questioning like wh- what what is what is this was me always reading the Genesis account Uh Um, Mm -hmm. and and looking at genesis 2 or genesis 3 when adam and eve adam and eve eat the fruit and then asking what happens because after they eat the fruit like nothing happens (laughs) and and that's the thing because i mean genesis 3 is always kind of held as here's the the inception of sin yeah and here's the inception of here's this doctrine that we kind of get indoctrinated within within uh, evangelical christianity or um of like sin that makes you bad it's something that's a disease that's passed on it's it's something that makes you despicable to god like sinners in the hands of an angry god like you say yeah. and god is angry with you mm. um and yet you have in the story that we turn to is like here's the moment where sin enters the picture uh, a god who's pursuing and and a humanity that's hiding so yeah. adam and eve eat the fruit and then they hide and then god comes out and it's like hey where are you guys at like let's hang out and and then you have like this conversation where god's just like what's like what's going on you two and and then in the very next chapter when when adam and eve are no longer in eden which we can i mean there's there's so much here yeah um and you think, okay, well, then here is the start of God's animosity towards humanity. Like, here is the start of humanity being bad. Like, there's this little conversation that God has with humanity. And then he starts his, like, and now we're going to start the timeline and the clock of, like, get your shit straight. Otherwise, <laughs> hell. Yeah. Um, and yet, in the very next chapter, you have God hanging out once again with, with Cain. Like he comes out onto the field. And so it's just like, what happened between three and four? Like, yes, there's a change yeah. of location, but nothing changes with God's pursuit of humanity. 
And so that was always this space of like, I don't, I don't understand this thing that we call sin that makes us unloved by God or unwanted by God when everything about the story of sin, at least the inception of sin, is a God who never changes toward us. That is so interesting because we, we know, um, you know, that, that God, um, the, the version of God that we've been taught is omnipresent, mm-hmm. omnipotent, you know, so God already knows that Cain's going to kill Abel. In, in that kind of evangelical way of thinking. We, God already knows what's going to happen, and yet he's still hanging out with Cain, the most despicable sinner up until that time in history. Um, mm-hmm. that, that's really interesting. And, and I find it interesting that you've kind of, <laughs> it's amazing how much we don't question scripture when it's taught to us and these things can be hiding in plain sight because I've mm-hmm. never heard of it that way. And you tweeted the other day that it's interesting to reflect on the fact that even God wasn't enough for Adam. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, oh, I've never thought about it that way. And there seems to be a whole lot of things popping up in my life that I go, oh, I've never thought about it that way. Like, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> right throughout the Bible. So, And yet it's just right there. It's just right there. So I suppose... Um, there's so many questions that I have in my mind just instantaneously that I just don't know which rabbit to follow down the hole, I suppose. But for you as a, as a mental health professional, um, is it interesting to kind of view the church from a little bit of a standpoint that's a little further away, less entrenched? Is it interesting for you to kind of, are there any ties, I suppose, between this view of, ourselves as despicable as depraved as Mm -hmm. cut off from god that Mm -hmm. that doesn't help mental health within a church setting and and i suppose does this reassessing our view of god and sin help with that yeah i (laughs) i mean that framework what you're naming like you grew up within the church and 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 with this framework of like oh like you're deserving of death until some magic prayer mm-hmm. and and making sure that your beliefs are right uh, suddenly suddenly changes you um and whether it's the church or even if you're not in the church it's the same framework that impacts our lives because if you grow up within a church believing that you're just a shameful um human who in and of himself is just destined for hell yeah right um and that that the god of the universe does not like simultaneously loves you and then also like once like is can't stand you hands off yeah <laughs> um that's very confusing psychologically yeah. for one and it and especially within church structures it creates uh structures of control and abuse um but even remove that outside of church and and place yourself in in a family system in which you your value or your goodness within the home is found in either doing the right things or or believing what the family believes and if you don't then you're outcasted (laughs) um those are the same traumatic unhealthy frameworks of control that come into conflict with like our humanity like there's something in our bodies that recognize when we find ourselves in these spaces there's something not right here yeah um, but we're also wired for relationship. Yeah. 
And so we do everything in our power to remain connected to the people around. And so if we find ourselves within a community that says, hey, you need to do this and you need to do this and you need to act this way, it's just like, well, something about this doesn't seem right, but I don't want to lose you. So yeah, when we, start, we start embodying the frameworks that the system is giving us, whether or not it's actually healthy. That is quite profound because I, I think a lot of listeners um, or followers of the blog or, or listeners to the podcast have, have actually lived through that experience of losing church community over not, um, you know, over some conflict, whether it's a mm-hmm. question about theology, whether it's, um, you know, the idea that they wanted to be affirming uh, of LGBT people or mm-hmm. they didn't want to be climate change deniers or they, they did, were for the rights of refugees and the humane treatment of immigrants, things that I just don't think that Jesus would be, you know, against. Um, a lot of people have actually lost um, church community over that or they've, they've left church over that and with mm-hmm. that these unconditional relationships, and I'm using air quotes there, um, they've, they've become quite conditional and it's become quite obvious mm-hmm. that the standing has changed. But also there's people who have literally lost family relationships over this or whose family yeah. relationships have irrevocably changed and I'm one of those. Um, so we're kind of we're dealing with a really big thing for a lot of people mm-hmm. who um and, and I'll, I'll be honest when i first lost community and lost my family relationships as they were and like i'm still estranged from my dad um I got a text from my mum this morning because my grandfather's unwell, but like that's mm. like that's the extent of of my parental relationships and my sibling relationships are irrevocably changed. Um, but you know, like the first thing that you kind of think about is okay, now that I'm not conforming to their model and my relationships have changed, mm-hmm. the first thing you think is what's wrong with me. And mm. that's a big thing for a lot of deconstructing Christians to work through is that sense of wrongness within Mm. ourselves, even if we've followed our integrity and our ethics and our high sense of, you know, the the high sense of importance placed on truth and justice, even if we've followed that out. So, I mean, I guess it's a big uh, comment there. And usually I'm so good at crafting succinct questions, but, I've well, really I mean, been thinking so much about what you put in that email. I was like, I don't know anything about yeah. this. So you're just going to have to talk. Yeah. I, I mean, something, <laughs> something that you just said is like, I mean, there's so much in there that like systems of control and frameworks of, of believe this, believe this, believe this, like there's, there's something being met there in those structures and that's safety. Hmm. It's, yeah. it's, it's the sense of, I can, I can trust and, and predict what the people around me will do, which gives me a sense of safety mm-hmm. um, because I trust that they believe the same things I do, which mm-hmm. means that I believe that, and I can trust that I'm right and they're right and we're together in it. The moment you invite difference in, the moment you invite something that you're unfamiliar with, then suddenly uh, there's this sense of discomfort and, 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 a lack of safety because here's someone or a system that I'm unfamiliar with, which leaves me feeling uh, danger, mm. leaves me feeling uh, unprotected. And this expand this spans beyond Christianity. I mean, this is where racism comes in. This is uh, 
interreligion wars. Um, it's a sense of like, I don't understand you. Um, yeah. I don't understand your culture. I don't understand your beliefs. I don't understand your language. And that leaves me feeling out. Yeah. And, and if I feel out, then that leaves me feeling, uh, that in, in a sense, in relational danger, I can't trust that I'm okay with you. So I can't yep. trust my safety of being cared for by you. Um, so there's one thing that like dogmatic evangelical Christianity offers, and it's a sense of safety, which is oftentimes <laughs> why people enter into specifically like hardline dogmatic faiths when their life outside of it is like insecure and falling apart. Cause like, here's something that's offering safety. Here's something I can hold on to. Here's the check boxes that I can assess like, okay, I'm doing the right thing. So I'm, I'm good. Yeah. Um, but the only thing is, is that when the more that you move into a dogmatic framework, the less relationship is present um, because relationship cannot be contained within checkboxes and to do's uh, relationships are this mutual giving and receiving. And it's this mutual like abandonment to vulnerability of like, okay, I, I trust that you will care for me, but I'm not going to, I'm not going to enter into a contractual relationship with you. It's like you do this and I do this and then we're good. That's not relationship. That is interesting. And that resonates to an uncomfortable degree, I think, um, because, yeah, look, uh, I've, I've heard people say a lot, a couple of things. Why do smart people join cults, toxic groups, or high-demand religion? Mm -hmm. and, we, and a lot of people from the outside assume they're dumb, um, you know, assume they're stupid for, for joining that, but I don't find that to be my experience. These are often people who are really... A, either in a vulnerable state in their life or, or B, they're thinking deeply about the world and going, I need something to tie this up in a neat bow for me. And I think it speaks to that psychological desire for us to seek out safety and answers yep. and it can create in place. Us, yeah, and it can create in us, uh, um, you know, once we find that group that might profess unconditional love, but really what it is is, a, a relational contract if you behave this and i'll behave this way then we'll be forever mm -hmm. um <laughs> so there's a lot in what you just said but that that safety seeking is really quite profound so when people when people lose that community that feeling of loss of safety can be quite mm -hmm. crushing yeah and absolutely it, and it can put a sense of of fear of hell is, is one thing um, and fear of, uh, and people can spend a lot of time ruminating, did I do the wrong thing? Did I do the wrong thing? Was it me who did the mm. wrong thing? Um, which can become quite a layer of existential mm. dread if you've been yeah. raised in kind of that Calvinistic. Yeah. Well, and that, and to that point, um, the, this idea of like, if we step away from community and, and again, to name that, we're attracted to even these these systems that we come to find are oppressive or dogmatic or, yeah. or rigid. Um, we're drawn to it because we get this little taste of relationship. We get this little taste of here are people who are telling me I'm welcome. Yeah. And that strikes at the core of our humanity. Like we want to be in community. We want to be in relationship where it starts to fall apart and where I feel like a lot of people who walked away from uh, the church and are deconstructing our finding is that relationship gets changed to uh, a belief framework. And that belief framework comes into conflict with 
well, but what about these feelings of mine? Or what about these thoughts of mine? Like, are they welcome? Are they allowed at the table? And it's like, no, absolutely not. You bring <laughs> that part of you and you are out of the community. Yeah. And so now all of a sudden that which invited us into church, this sense of like, oh, I feel accepted, suddenly starts having, uh, um, what's the word? Like rules of, but if you're gonna be a part of this community, you need to get rid of this part of who you are. You can never show this part of who you are. Um, yep. And and so suddenly our value and our worth within the community uh, gets hinged upon our our like what we do and what we believe, um, yeah. and that is always outside of ourselves. That's this like, but what about me? Like, if I question this, am I still okay? It's like, nope. Question it, you're out. Um, yeah, that is that is massive because I've I've discovered in kind of in just being around the traps, being around this deconstruction community, mm -hmm. one of the big ticket items that often people find themselves out of the fold over is whether they're LGBT affirming. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a strand deeper than that is um, whether they are LGBT. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously there's conversion practices that are, that are nestled in there. And we're about to see the Netflix of rele a release of a... Um, a documentary called Pray Away, which talks about the Exodus movement, the ex-gay movement, which is kind of resurfacing again. But um, as the ex-wife of a, um, a recently out man um, who I love dearly and who's my best friend and as a, as a friend of a lot of other queer ex-Christians or queer Christians, you can't change that about yourself. And if you are trying so hard to conform, there's um, a detrimental effect that that has on your mental health mm -hmm. a, and your self-expression and your your way of being in the world. It takes quite a long way, long yeah. time to recover from. And I think sexuality is just one example of that. Mm -hmm. And that's that's a great example in the sense of of when, when, like when even when you say conform, like our desire to be in community sometimes we internalize, okay, I need to be like everyone. And, and so it's like, what do I need to wear? What do I need to like? What do I need to enjoy? Like, what do I need to like be opposed to? Because it's this assimilation into a community of like, okay, if I, if I act the same way, talk the same way, like the same things, then I'll be accepted. But the thing is, is that now we aren't an individual. Yeah. Um, and the parts that make us us are our thoughts, our wants, our needs, our desires, our opinions, the way we read and perceive the world um, aren't allowed because that creates tension because you have two different people thinking the same thing. Oh, no, tension, like <laughs> risk. Um, so wear the same thing, believe the same thing. And and then there's safety. And I think when when you when it comes to the conversation of LBGTQ, like that is a really stark example because here is something in essence about a, a human being that suddenly is just like, I have to pretend this doesn't exist if I'm going to be accepted. Um, and that, and the internalization that there are parts of who I am that aren't acceptable to this community. And, and what do I want? Do I want community or do I want acceptance? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I look, I, I probably, I'm not, I, I know I've used this example before, but it's just on my mind so much. And as a, as a mental health professional, you've probably come across this. Um, back in the 40s or 50s or something, I think it was the 50s, there was an ASH, the ASH conformity studies um, where they lined up five people. Now, four were, in act, four were actors and the fifth was an actual study participant. And they asked them, 
which they showed them two lines on a wall and asked them which is longer. And they had the other, they had the four actors say the wrong one. And then the study was on what happened in that in that fifth person. Did yeah. they go along with the group or did they speak up? Now mm. it's such a ridiculous thing, the length of a line, it doesn't matter. But yeah. um the 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 dynamic that, that created is people conformed to a to a high number they conformed mm. to what the group said even though it was obvious to them that that was not um correct and that is a just shining example of of how much we need tribe and, and what we'll yep. do to fit in even if they're people we don't know yeah so then you load that situation when you put someone in a church um and i'm not and it'll happen in any group um you know any group of people you kind of start wearing similar things your fashion kind of adapts your mm. the mannerisms of speech that make it in there but but at what line does that become just you know echoing your your uh social crowd and at what line is it re- repression of self mm-hmm. um and i think reverting back to the the concept that we started talking about sin and our definition of it mm. is probably part of the loading of the language when we talk about what is acceptable and what's not in these groups. So what do we need to do with this word sin and what do we need to understand about it in order to create safety? Yeah. Well, uh, we're not going to create safety if we, if we (laughs) like understanding sin in a relational context actually is a movement away from safety. Um, And, and I think of it even in the sense of like CS Lewis and Chronicles of Narnia, uh, when the question is asked, is Aslan safe? And and the response is like, safe? No, but he's good. Um, it's the sense that relationships aren't safe. Like at their core, relationships are not safe because you can't predict and you can't control. Um, it's, it's walking into a, a dynamic and a dance with someone trusting uh, by not controlling them that you are okay. And that you are acceptable, and that you are, and that you are safe. Um, but that's trusting that you are safe, um, not securing safety. Um, and so, when it comes to sin, so to to see sin within a relational context, it's it goes back. So let's look at the Genesis account, um, which I think is brilliant. Mm. I think we miss a lot of the brilliancy in it. Um, but it's it's. I mean, you're looking at a story that's trying to make sense of humanity. Uh, it's trying to make sense of like, well, how did we get to where we are today and, and core essences of, of humanity? And so like, I, I don't look at Genesis as a literal account of, of anything, but I, I, there's a lot of, of metaphor um, to be like, oh, like here, here's a truth and here's a way to explain it. Mm-hmm. Um, and when we look at the Genesis account, Genesis one through three, specifically, you have a story that works really, really hard to, to emphasize and let the reader know you are wired for relationship. Like life in its fullest is found in relationship, in relationship with each other, in relationship with God, in relationship with creation, in healthy relationship with yourself. Um, and because you have Genesis 1, which the focal point of Genesis 1 is on who is God. It's God is the center character. God is creating. God is filling realms. God is inviting and creating humanity simultaneously male and female like at the same time egalitarian let's go um (laughs) 
Love it. And just with the emphasis of, of God is creating something good to hand over to, to someone to delight in. Um, and then you have Genesis 2 where the focus is on humanity, but the emphasis is on, well, let's understand a core aspect of what humanity is. And that is that wiring for relationship. Because you have Genesis 1, which uh, uh, to go back, like from the very beginning defines God as relationship. Mm-hmm. defines God as love. The word used for God is Elohim, which is the plural form of gods. Oh, um, so God from the very beginning is called gods in the plural. <laughs> um, but within, I mean, Jewish tradition and within Christianity, it's like, well, even though it's plural, it's just in representative of one God. Um, but hello, Trinity. Um, yeah. And then you've got God who creates spirit hovering over water and, and, but God creates through the word, which John book of John says was, was Jesus. So Mm -hmm. like people trying to like figure out, it's like, okay, here's this community of a being uh, that at its core is relationship. Yeah. And then Genesis two, like, let's, let's drive home the fact that God creates humanity in God's image to be like God and the best way to describe a humanity wired for relationship is like, let's change the story and have humanity be created as an individuality. And then so then you have a story where you have Adam created, but not Eve. Mm. So Adam is a singularity. And then that's the, the tweet. There's a sense of like, and Adam is depressed. Yeah. Adam living in isolation is not satisfied, even though in this story, Adam's hanging out with God. Yeah. And, and so I sit with that when, whenever you have people who are just like, well, you just need Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> that's a, like, that's all you need. It's all you need. It's like, actually, no, like, yeah. like Jesus, there is goodness there and Jesus can invite you into hope. Um, but, but we have in Genesis two this realization that humanity cannot live in isolation and, and humanity finds its fulfill its fullness and it's, and it's life in relationship with another. Mm. Um, and when I say that, I don't mean like, everyone needs to get married. I mean, just community, like we need people. Um, and then, so Genesis two emphasizes the fact that the, like he, humans need each other because yeah. then you have Eve and then you have naked and unashamed, which is defining shame in its absence that mm. humanity is able to be with each other, uh, in the bareness of their bodies and the bareness of their emotions and the bareness of their spirituality, like they're being able to be completely vulnerable with one another um, and find it safe, trust that the other is okay. And that sets us up for Genesis three. That sets us up for, okay, so then what is sin? And then in Genesis three, when you have the fruit and they eat the fruit um, and nothing happens except for it says, and then their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked. Hmm. I think that is such a key phrase because you have Genesis one and two building up and knocking home. Humans are made to be in relationship. God is a, is a, is a, is a community in and of itself. And then Genesis three and, and Genesis two humanity is able to live in vulnerability with one another, trusting one another for their own safety. Um, And then Genesis three, suddenly you have a serpent that's questioning, which is causing doubt. And so this doubt of like, can I trust God? Yeah. Can I trust that God has my well-being in mind, that my safety in mind, my my goodness and hopes and uh, in mind that He can care for me well? And then, so then here's the inception of doubt, and then here's the inception of this decision of 
I don't trust God. And, and then, which is manifested in the action of eating the fruit. And then their eyes are opened and they see that they are naked. And so again, to look at nakedness as vulnerability, emotional vulnerability, physical vulnerability, their eyes are open to the awareness of their vulnerability into the awareness of their, of their danger. Like vulnerability is dangerous. Yeah. Um, and, and so their eyes are open to vulnerability. Um, because here is this moment where doubt creeps in and then is, is agreed upon. Like, no, nah, I don't trust. And if I can't trust God, then, I, then, then fissures kind of in a crack happen. Now Adam and Eve don't trust each other because they're hiding their vulnerability from one another. Um, and then you have a God who comes out and is just like, hey, let's hang out. And then there's defensiveness. There's, uh, Adam literally says, like, he doesn't say, I was hiding in a bush because I disobeyed. Yeah. He says, I was hiding in a bush or I heard you coming and I was afraid because of my nakedness. I heard you coming. So I hid because of my vulnerability. I did not trust you to care for me in my vulnerability. Wow. And so here becomes, here begins this movement of do we trust in relationship or if when we don't, do we isolate? Do we hide? Do we hide our vulnerability? Do we hide our emotions? Do we hide that which makes us us? Do we physically isolate from one another because other people are dangerous? Um, and because we find safety in ourselves, it's like that idea of the only person I can trust is me. Everyone else is a danger. This is such an interesting question to ask this year, you know, mm -hmm. when I think no... In, in living memory, there has been no societal event mm -hmm. that has isolated people as yep. much as what COVID-19 has. Whether yep. or not you're in Australia in lockdown or in whether you're in Seattle and able to hop on your bike and go over and see a friend, like, you know, there's there's been this feeling of isolation that we've really had mm -hmm. to confront. And alongside that, I think people have been at home with their demons, you know, they've been mm -hmm. living with, you know, asking themselves, am I happy with this relationship? Am I happy with this job? Am I, you know, there's, and there's this intense vulnerability that can come up. So, so what you're saying is that it's, that sin is the defensiveness, is the withdrawal? Sin is the, I, I would say ultimately sin boils down to the mistrust of relationship. The mistrust, um, the mistrust of the other, um, which mm -hmm. which manifests itself in actions that move us into social isolation um, or or relational isolation. And so, uh, like Augustine says that the the essence of sin is pride. Um, yeah. But for me, as a therapist, I look at pride. I'm like, no, but pride is still the product of something. Like we yeah. become prideful when we embody a belief that we have to do it on our own. Yeah. And then we get really good at doing that on our, on our own. And then it's just like, I don't need you. Yeah. Like I'm good. Like that, that's pride. That's an isolate relationally isolating posture. Yeah. And so, so sin is that moment in our bodies. Um, and, and where I'll use Augustine's word, def the defectus will, like a will that turns away. Okay. Um, Cause I think that's a great way of putting it. Yeah. It's that moment where you say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to trust relationships, so I'm going to move away. Yeah. And, and oftentimes that shows up in action. 
like often like oftentimes within the church we we limit sin to like the actions like yeah, don't do yeah. sin um but jesus and sermon of the mount like really ha hammers home it's just like yeah you've heard it said like don't murder someone but <laughs> but i tell you it's like if you hold hatred and like and anger like towards someone like then you're sinning yeah um because your posture toward that that other is one of of distrust one of movement away okay that verse makes a little bit more sense now um now obviously this doesn't mean okay so you, say you're in an abusive relationship um <laughs> And you have to withdraw from from that yep. relationship for yep. your own safety. Um, that's not sin. No, so that is that is a great that is a great question, and I'm glad you brought that because that that brings in this interesting space of like, are these moments where where sin is actually good? Oh. And and Ooh. and I say that, and I say that in the sense that because you have you have like Pharisees asking Jesus about divorce. Yeah. It's like, what do you say about divorce? And, and Jesus is just like, it wasn't intended. Yeah. Like, because ultimately the, the intention is, is trust. It's vulnerability. Yeah. It's relationship. There shouldn't be anything that moves us out of relationship. Yeah. Like to exist in vulnerability in mutual giving and receiving, that's where life is found. Yeah. And so of course there isn't going to be a desire for, for God to have like, ah, but like leave them. Like, yeah. That's okay, because that's going to come from a breakdown of trust. That's going to break come from a breakdown of relationship. Yeah. But Jesus then says, "But because of the hardness of your hearts, uh, divorce has been kind of rubber stamped. Like it's okay, yeah. because we have to recognize that we do not live in a space in which we can authentically trust one another. We yeah. can't. Like we shouldn't." go around this world being completely vulnerable with everyone no, because that's, that's going to lead to harm. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but, but it's that unfortunate aspect of like, it's going to lead to harm, but it wasn't meant to, and it's not supposed yeah. to like yeah. the ideal state of life and feeling fulfilled and feeling loved and feeling cherished is the ability to live in a community where you trust and can be vulnerable with everyone. Like that's mm -hmm. where life is, but because we don't live there, there has to be space for boundaries. Yeah, there has to be space for, okay, there, this isn't healthy and this isn't caring for me well. So I am going to remove myself from relationship. I don't trust. Yeah. And so that's this interesting space of just like, so are these moments where sin is actually good? good? Um, and also with clients and I'm like, I really hope that if you grow up in an abusive household, you don't trust and you remove yourself from relationship um, yeah. or from relational trust so that you survive. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, I'll also say that was not the intent. Like yeah. that is not where life is. And if you leave that abusive household, if you, if you leave those abusive relationships or anything else in which it actually really is good for you to remove yourself from relationship, mm -hmm. but you internalize that framework now of like, well, because I've been harmed, I cannot trust. Yeah. And you yes. take that sin, that mistrust of relationship, and now just make it a blanket belief. Uh, you you are now removing yourself from community and from life and the ability and the possibility of love. Um, but even again, holding this framework, when you put sin within a relational context, there isn't shame in it. Yeah, like sh sin isn't something that's bad. Yeah, um, sin isn't something that makes you broken. Like sin is that movement of self protection because of fear 
sin is that movement of like, uh, like I, I want to be safe. I want to be protected. And sin can actually show up in actions that are deemed good. Um, well, this is a mind bender, but I like the I like what you're doing here in taking the shame aspect away from sin. Like if you have to do it for your self protection, mm-hmm. sin can be good. Mm-hmm. But if it if it's something that you continue to use to justify withdrawal from society or any restorative mm-hmm. relationship or going to therapy for that matter, so that you mm-hmm. can learn to re-engage with with relationship in a healthy way, um, then you know, that, that means you're moving, yeah, you're moving back towards trust. You're moving yeah. back towards being healthy in this area. I yeah. like that. But, my gosh, it's a mind bender to think sin isn't always bad. Yeah. And and one thing to kind of look at that is where do you start? Like I love, like, to steal, to steal uh, everyone's favorite heretic, Rob Bell. Um, <laughs> he said, like, where, where you begin the story matters. Yeah. Because um, if you start the story in Genesis 3, um, then you have a, a fallen humanity that's broken, that's diseased, in need of some answer. Yeah. Um, and and that I think is like evangelicals' understanding of sin and evangelicalism's um, holding of like, okay, so what is salvation? What is what are we doing? It's yeah. we can't do anything about it because we're defective. Um, and and so. There's nothing we. There's really nothing we can do uh, except for wait for something greater than us to to <laughs> heal us. Yes, yes. Um, so we're not a participant in salvation. We're not a participant in redemption. Um, which which plays real nicely to a system that then is just like so. Then it's just all about believing the right thing because you can believe without it actually impacting or affecting your life at all. Mm. Um, which is Jesus's main critique of the Pharisees. It's like you believe all the right things, but that has not impacted the way in which you engage in relationship. This um, me up because it's what we're seeing across the world right now mm-hmm. is the church getting loud and proud about why we should be obeying its rules mm-hmm. and in doing so cutting itself off from the vulnerable and the abused and the marginalized yep. that Jesus was speaking for when he was saying, don't be Pharisees. Anyway, that's yeah. a soapbox, I suppose, there. But, and so if you start in Genesis 1, though, yeah, and, and you hold sin within a relational context of, well, sin is just that movement away from relationship. Sin is movement away from the Imago Dei. Mm-hmm. Like we are created to be in the image of a relational God, to be in relationship. And sin is that which moves us out. Yeah. Um, suddenly, salvation, redemption, Jesus's entire gospel is one we participate in. So then all of a sudden what makes sense is the main thing that Jesus is proclaiming is repent, which literally means comes back. Yeah. Like you've, you're going away, come back. Uh, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Like you can experience life now. I've come to give you life in its fullest. And it's in the message of repent, like return to relationship. Um, so this is, this is interesting and i know i've said that word a few times i need to get my thesaurus out and find other words of saying interesting um (laughs) because the great evangelical metaphor is of a god who cannot stand sin and thus cut Mm -hmm. us off and cast us out and that in order to come back to him there had to be jesus dying a gruesome and ugly death that, you know, we were the ones who put him on the cross. And mm-hmm. there's this metaphor of humanity on one side of a chasm and God on the other side of the chasm and the cross bridges the gap. Mm-hmm. 
But what you're saying is when Adam and Eve sinned, God did nothing. God mm -hmm. did not move away. Yeah, God pursued. God pursued and Adam and Eve couldn't accept the pursuit mm -hmm. because of their own shame and distrust. Mm -hmm. So so God didn't put that that chasm there. So so that changes the metaphor completely then. So then mm -hmm. then what is the role of Jesus in the great redemption of mankind? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a, there's there's a whole lot there too. Yeah. Um I mean I would to to simplify something that's not necessarily simple. Yeah. Um to look at it in the the grand narrative of scripture and history in general is like all of scripture is a story of God's constant pursuit of a humanity that's moving away. Yeah. I think in, in college, I read through the Bible cover to cover. Cause it's like, you know, I've read a lot of this, but I don't think I've ever read it cover to cover. Yeah. And even though there's, there's a whole lot within the Bible, you're just like, what is going on here? Um, one thing that stood out to me uh, in its overall narrative was this constant, like I found myself being like, God, you are way too kind to this people. Um, like you have, you have Israel constantly kind of falling away and, and moving away and being like, well, fuck you, God. Um, yeah. and, and yet you have a God who's constantly pursuing. Um, and, and so you have this story of, of from Genesis three, God, like the moment humanity starts moving away, God's still coming out and, and pursuing them and kind of being like, Hey, like, where are you guys going? Yeah. Um, in the very next scene, hanging out with them again and throughout all of scriptures hanging out. And then you have God, even to the extent of coming in human form in Jesus, kind of the exact same message. Hey, come hang out, like yeah. repent, come back, return, um, be in relationship. The, like all of the stories when you read them are, are, are stories of inviting into relationship, inviting into, um, like naming the areas in which we are protecting ourselves uh, through whatever actions that we're doing because we don't trust that we're going to be loved or cared for. Mm. Um, which is really interesting. Like it reframing sin within a relational context completely changes the way you read everything. Cause read like you read anything and then you ask the question of like, how is this inviting back into vulnerability? What is happening in the story of people protecting themselves from a perceived uh, mistrust of the other. And then you've got Jesus constantly being like, Hey, like, don't don't sin like don't go go and don't sin anymore yeah uh, is the sense of like okay like don't like trust like come back don't don't continue doing those things that you think uh are protecting you from because they're actually keeping you from life and so you have jesus like i look at jesus as just this epitome of a god who's just like how far do i need to go to be with my creation to be with humanity and invite them into relationship. And, and I look at the cross as, as really this moment of like the worst thing that you can do in relationship. Mm -hmm. um, the, the, the greatest mistrust, the greatest removal of, yeah. of possibility is to murder the other person. Yeah. Because if you murder the other person, there's no possibility for restoration. There's no possibility <laughs> for return. Um, no. No. And you have scripture that's constantly a people saying no to God, no to God, no to God, even to his face on the cross being like, we are going to end and sever this relationship altogether. And then you have God coming back and being like, hey, I know that you killed me. <laughs> uh, 
even even when you go to the furthest extent of saying no, yeah. of of removing yourself from relationship, I am still going to pursue. Now, this is I mean, it's a beautiful message, and it takes a bit to wrap one's head around, especially when the I mean, the Old Testament's <laughs> fucking bloodthirsty. I mean, mm-hmm. but I guess, but I guess war and genocide and the kind of stuff that we witnessed in the old testament mm-hmm. is sin on mass isn't it it's yeah when you have countries going to war it's it's a mistrust that the other country is going to be in relationship well yeah and war is domination it's control it's like i'm going to force things to happen the way that i want so that i feel safe so when we take this out of because oh, I'm definitely going to have to read the Bible again. That's that's not a word I. <laughs> that's not a phrase You're that I have to say. But um, I'll be honest. I think I've read the Bible more since leaving church than I ever did on the inside mm. of it. Because I'm going back and going, well, what did that really say? Um, and I mean, there's things that were just hiding in plain sight that yeah. you're like, whoa. You're like. Oh. Uh, I didn't. I was not allowed to think about that while I was on the inside of church. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Um, it's not that anybody said, no, you can't think about it that way. It was the vulnerability, the risk of mm-hmm. isolation that would happen if I allowed myself to think differently. Mm-hmm. Um, now, obviously, there is right and wrong. Obviously, there is a code of ethic. Mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, even if you boil that down, though, when you when when we make decisions of what is right and wrong, which which are culturally created. Yes, because each culture is going to have a different definition, but it's always going to be a decision that's defined by: is this beneficial to the the group? Is this beneficial to the relationship? Is this beneficial to the sustenance of a community? Yeah. And so, right and wrong and ethics are always going to be made through a framework of how does this harm another human yeah. or creation or an animal? Uh, how does this harm life? Uh, yeah. Yes. True. You're, and I'm thinking. You know, like in Australia, um, you know, obviously domestic violence is a huge, yeah. it's a huge issue across the developed world, across the, you know, mm-hmm. developing world, I'm sure it is too. But um, in Australia, there's been this whole movement because I think it's like one woman per week is is killed by her partner in a country of 25 million. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so violence against women is a big deal. And I remember a couple of years ago, um, this is before I took up stand-up comedy. It's before I took up, was running in these circles. But there was a woman, uh, Eurydice Dixon was her name, and she was walking through the park on the way home from a comedy gig and she was um, sadly murdered. And there was hmm. this outcry about how women should be able to walk in the park at night mm-hmm. by themselves. We shouldn't be in danger. Um, you know, yeah. domestic violence, violence against women shouldn't happen. And yeah. Yes, I mean, that is true, but does that mean we can trust people not to commit these atrocities? Mm-hmm. No, and that's because sin exists, mm-hmm. because people are doing things that are aggressive and are making mm-hmm. it so that we can't engage in trusting, you know, behaviour within yeah. society, I guess. I'm trying to yeah. kind of work with the metaphor and it's it's difficult because I've been thinking of sin all my life as something that is bad and horrible that God will cut me off for, Mm -hmm. not as something that can be beneficial sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, A lot of people like, and I left, I left church 
under, well, I left my dad's church under difficult circumstances and it was to do with asking questions that um, were not deemed appropriate to ask. Yeah. Um, obviously, it's a huge, huge story, um, but that's where it started. Um, but I had to withdraw from that in, for my own health, for the health of my baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, yeah, I mean, so was that sin? I don't know because, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd say no. I think I did the right thing. I know I did mm-hmm. the right thing, but I did the right thing by my husband. I did the mm-hmm. right thing by my child. I did the right thing by my conscience. Yeah. Um, and I did the right thing for other people who had been hurt or damaged within the same group. Mm-hmm. So was cutting off that relationship needed? Yeah. Yes. Um, Did I stay withdrawn? No. I engaged in, I started going to another church um, and didn't stop going to that church until COVID-19 hit and we moved to Melbourne anyway. And and now, so I guess it's been my pursuit to always make sure that I've got people around me who are, you know, like, and and through the the podcast, I suppose, is one way, a tribe of people who can encourage me yeah. to live a life that is of a high ethical standard, is, is mm-hmm. altruistic, is connected, stuff like that. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I guess I guess when you put sin within the relational context, it, it's less doom and gloomy. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's really what I what I hope um, people can hear. Mm. Um, because when it is in the relational context, sin isn't something that makes you bad. No. And that's, that's often the experience of like, oh, the moment you sin, you've become bad. Mm. You've become broken. And, and I'll say with that, whether religious or not, I'll have clients that come in and they'd be like, I am not worth good things because of all the stuff that I've done. And so there is this internalized framework of, of sin, whether religious or not, this idea that I've done bad things, which makes me unlovable, mm. which makes me uh, unredeemable. There's nothing I can do to fix that. Um, and, and so even when you have like situations like your own, it's just like, well, here's a moment. Okay. If sin is this relational context of just mistrust of relationship. And, but here's a, a situation where I kind of needed to yeah. Like for, for my own health and safety. Yeah. Like I needed to mistrust that relationship. Uh, suddenly like that engagement of sin isn't something that makes you bad. No. Um, it moves you out of, of relationship. It moves you out of life per se, yeah. in the sense that humans are wired for relationship. Yeah. But that relationship wasn't holding life because there wasn't mutual love. There wasn't mutual care. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so when I look at, sin in a relational context and then even within the framework of like well but sin is something that's punished by god something um the idea of punishment makes god really small um because punishment is is an (laughs) external control to make someone do something um and and so like when you look at sin within a relational context you begin to see that that justice um so is justice punishment or is it something else well sin in a relational con- context uh within a relational framework justice isn't punishment yeah. um because punishment misses out on the underlying cause yeah yeah punishment is just saying what you've done this action was bad yeah and you're going to punish for it but without understanding but why did this action happen 
Yeah. Like what is motivating this? What yeah. is the mistrust? And then when we, if we can break down sinful actions, quote unquote, yeah. um, and recognize its core mistrust, then, then justice is actually engaging that mistrust and inviting someone back to relationship. This yeah. space of like, Hey, you're acting out because you don't trust that you're going to be cared for. Like, let's, let's fix that. Let's fix that relationship. And so yeah. justice becomes uh, forgiveness and relational restoration in the sense of like, so justice for you in that sense would be like, here's a relationship that is ruptured mm. by sin, by mistrust yeah. of relationship. The justice of that isn't punishment for doing something Christianity says it's bad. <laughs> the justice of that is like, let's heal this. Yeah. Let's heal this break. Let's heal this rupture. Let's heal this. And that's what I see it with God. Like it completely changes our view of God because now God isn't out to get us, but you really begin to see here's a God who's like pleading mm. throughout scripture. Like what you guys are doing is killing you. Yeah. Um, yeah. Now I, there's like, obviously the thing that springs to mind, you know, like in, in abusive relationships, mm. if you're the person who's being abused, at, like there's behavior that's been directed at you that has ruptured that relationship. Mm -hmm. So do you have a choice in terms of like, yeah, if, if there's if there's been behavior directed at you that has ruptured the relationship that has created an inability to trust, mm -hmm. um, it's not wrong for you to go, I'm getting out of this. Mm -hmm. I'm keeping That's my healthy boundaries. Safe. That is healthy boundaries. Um, yeah. So if anyone is listening to this and thinking, oh, you know, I'm in an abusive church or I'm in an abusive relationship, mm -hmm. um, no, God, no. Like you, you need to, you need to take care yeah. of yourself. Um, but which I would refer them to your 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 interview with Mike Phillips, which was oh, fantastic. That was a good interview. Um, so <laughs> go yeah. go back go back and listen to the Mike Phillips episode. Yeah, because um, we we do audience. Have, um, yeah, <laughs> we do have. Like, because when, when there's been somebody sin against us, I think, mm. I think is the best way, like that, if there's a, abusive behavior that's come towards us, if there's like high control, if there's mm. coercion, um, mm. if there's, you know, stuff like this, this is sinful behavior directed towards us. Yeah. We have to remove ourselves Absolutely. from those situations. It is not wrong to do so. Yeah. It is, it is right to do so. But also I think there's an important thing to raise is that um, <laughs> often abusers are really good at making us think that we're the ones in the wrong. Yep. And often this is it's a really interesting thing because the more you study, I'm sure you have some things to say on this, um, you know, we've just come through the Trump era. We're seeing a lot of big scalps fall within the evangelical Christian arena for bad behavior. There's like these Hillsong pastors who were cheating on their wives or, you know, the Ravi Zacharias, who was this beacon of apologetics. Turns out he was, you know, sexually abusing mm -hmm. a lot of women. Like this is bad behavior. This is sinful behavior. But what a lot of narcissists do is they deflect all the fault onto other people and make us think that it's our fault. But beneath that narcissistic surface is somebody often who has a very fragile ego yep. and a 
very fragile self-esteem <laughs> and is is projecting that onto others by making people worship them <laughs> and build them up, you know. So it's it, humanity is this complex web of functionality and dysfunctionality, of, of ethic and acting against ethic. And um, so the concept of sin as something cut and dry, right and wrong, is probably well due for an overhaul um but that doesn't mean it's an easy one to rebrand does it doesn't mean it's easy to rethink it well and and to to change the framework to mistrust anything of of changing your theology to one that's more vulnerable and more relationally oriented is is removing frameworks of safety yeah and so yeah, to to actually embody and hold like, okay, wait, sin is just mistrust of relationship, and it doesn't mean that it's bad. Because I think Miroslav yeah. Wolf uh, in in his book Free of Charge it presents this really interesting aspect of if you give a gift to someone, yeah, which inherently is a great action, like lovely, like deemed good, um, but you give it with the intent of like, if I give them this gift, then I'm I'm expecting something in return, or I'm going to get something out of this. Yeah. Uh, that's sin. Yeah. Uh, it's a good action. It's a great action. <laughs> I've, I've given a whole lot of money to charity and yeah. ex- like, but my underlying desire in it isn't actually a relational connection. It's getting something out of it. Yeah. Like that's sin, but, but it's not bad. It's just your posturing towards relationship is one that's moving away. And, yeah. and you bring up a really great point, like when talking about like abusive relationships and, like it's really easy again why i say that viewing god as one who punishes makes god a really small god Hmm. um is because it's really easy for us to look at being harmed and being like i just want them punished yeah like i want justice and we like we intertwine justice with punishment yeah like if i can if i can get punishment then i get justice yeah i don't think that's true um because punishment like you're harmed by someone there's relational rupture so really the real break and real pain of it is this relational rupture yeah not necessarily that you want to be back in relation but the sense of like this person has has deemed that my value my worth my goodness my wants and needs aren't worth being cared for and they're harming me in it and so justice justice isn't this divine punishment of like good to hell with you or or lock them away or or execute them because that doesn't restore the, yeah. the deep-seated harm. Um, and so whether or not the, the full justice is like a return to relationship with, a, with an abuser, I'm yeah. not saying that, but I'm saying, do we get to experience restoration in terms of someone looking at you who has harmed and saying, I'm sorry. Like yeah. I, you are worth so much more than what I have done. Um, that is where you start entering into justice and that, that kind of God who's able to look at all of the harm in the world and say, there's something underneath this rather than saying, you've done something bad, wipe them off the air. Like, let's do like done. It's such a small God, but a God that's able to say, okay, here's an abuser. What, what, what is bringing them to a state where they don't trust vulnerability with their partner? Yeah. Um, that leaves them feeling like they have to be in control. Yeah. They have to demand and get what whatever they want because they yeah. do not trust that their vulnerability will will meet their needs. Yeah. Um 
It's interesting because you, when you talk about justice, I mean, in Australia and I'm, I'm sure in other countries, um, justice systems are starting to look at, you know, treatment programs that decrease the risk of recidivism, that decrease the mm -hmm. risk that a person's going to re-offend because they don't want to punish someone for their crime so much as they want to rehabilitate them yeah. so that they can be a functioning, contributing member of society. Yep. It's a far better approach even though sometimes we just do want blood for what people mm -hmm. have have done to us, but um, you know, I, I think I think it's interesting. Like if you've moved out of an abusive relationship, it can be really hard. Like and and yes, somebody hurt you. Somebody mm -hmm. did the wrong thing. Somebody sought control rather than vulnerability. Somebody sought mm -hmm. to coerce rather than to, um, you know, romance and entice. Like, mm -hmm. you know, if somebody caused grievous harm, yeah. that they have done objectively bad, harmful things. You don't like have we to. and we have to name that. And we have so to even even when we move sin into relational mistrust, and it kind of removes like shame and and the stigma of like brokenness. Yeah. Like we still have to name harm. Yeah. Um, and, and name it for what it is. Exactly. And you do not have to return to that. But to live a life of isolation because you can't bear to engage in relationship again, mm -hmm. that is is a move away from trust. Mm -hmm. But it's also a move towards harm against self. Mm -hmm. Is it easy to fix? No. Um, you know, I am a huge advocate of therapy huge me too <laughs> i think even if life is going great you mm -hmm. should have a therapist if life's going terrible you should have a therapist if nothing's mm -hmm. really happening therapy is still good um <laughs> but you know i have found that i have needed coaching on things because i came out of a, an extremely churched environment and I'm now functioning in the real world where things are diff different, where you don't get to go, oh, you know, my pastor suggested that I go out with this person, so we're courting and we're going to get married eventually, and there's a certainty there. Instead, I've got to entertain the idea of if I want a life partner, um, you know, if I want a romantic life partner, I have a platonic life partner, <laughs> the father of my children, <laughs> but we're not married anymore. Um mm -hmm. But, you know, if, if I want that, I'm going to have to choose vulnerability. And mm -hmm. Renee Brown, the goddess oh, she is, love her. Um, vulnerability cannot happen without courage because mm -hmm. it takes courage to be vulnerable, um, yeah. especially in a world where we can't predict um, yeah. how another person's going to, you know, how they're going to act. So um, a first act of courage, first act of vulnerability is often a therapist that you can be up be open with yeah. mm -hmm. another active courage and vulnerability is making a friend that you can mm -hmm. be honest with um, mm -hmm. and showing up as yourself even on your most vulnerable days on the days where you think you look like mm -hmm. a swamp witch and you know like <laughs> um, what are some other things that you as a as a mental health practitioner and I gosh I we're an hour and six minutes into this interview and I haven't even asked you about your spiritual life. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I'm so bad at small talk. I'm just like, all right, let's talk about sin. <laughs> let's get into it. How are you? What's your name? What are your hobbies? I see you have a bike there. Do you ride it or is it just a decoration? Like, 
Uh, but, but what is some advice? What are the first things that you tell people when they've come out of these fractured and fraught relationships um, and are working their way back towards hope, mm. connection? Uh, uh, it's hard. Mm. Um, and That's okay. I, I mean, I'm right with you that it's, it's finding those spaces where you get to risk vulnerability. Um, and as we named earlier, like the ideal isn't just going out and being vulnerable because you're told like, this is where life is. It's like, you're just going to get hurt more. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's entering into spaces and therapy oftentimes is a fantastic start because here is a space that the whole purpose of it is to be vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, a space that's safe, uh, to be vulnerable. And, and I'll tell my clients, like we operate off of two narratives. We have a head narrative and we have a body narrative. Oh yeah. Like uh, the head narrative is kind of like, it's the first thing that's going to change because it's really easy to get someone, well, easy quote unquote, <laughs> uh, to get someone to get to a point where they're like, okay, my wants and needs matter. Um, but it's a lot harder to get your body to believe it because oh, yeah. your body is the bearer of memory of experience. And it's this, it's, we know what it felt like when we tried to ask for our wants and needs to be cared for. Yeah. Um, and so our body's just like, whoa, 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 hold on, hold on. If you are vulnerable in that way, like, here's a little reminder of what that feels like. And he's like, oh, okay, nope. It's like, yeah. I believe that my wants and needs matter, but I'm never going to advocate for them. Um, it's a lot harder to change a body narrative because body narratives change through experience. Um, and which is why therapy is such a healing space. Mm. And, and even more so, I would say group therapy. Anytime that I've run a group therapy, like it's exponential growth really? because suddenly you have multiple bodies, multiple nervous systems yeah. engaging yours and saying, you are worth it. You are lovely. You are beautiful. You are worth love. Mm. Um, and most often peers rather than a therapist that you're paying. Yeah. Um, cause you have to break through that barrier too. She's like, yeah, but I'm paying you to tell me that I'm lovely. And she's like, no, like <laughs> this is a real relationship. Um, but the more that you invite a body into the experience of risk and then it, that risk being met with care yeah, that invites the body to be like, Oh yeah, this is better. Yeah. Those moments where we're holding, like we're really upset by something, but before we'd be like, Nope, just swallow it, deal with it, whatever. And then you're stewing on it for weeks. And then you finally get to the point where you're just like, I'm going to be risky. I'm going to be vulnerable. And I'm just going to name it. And then you name it and you experience the other being like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And then yeah. you're just like, oh, that was so much easier. Yeah. That And that invites the body. It's just like, hey, let's remember this. Yeah. This feels better than holding on to things. Yeah. Um, and so it starts, yeah, oftentimes starts with therapy. It then moves to, okay, and then how do we risk with the close ones in our lives, friends, family, um, finding community um, that we feel like we can invest in and risk with. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, um, that's actually, it's quite profound. Um, yeah. And you, you'd be surprised. Like if you need to kind of give yourself a few wins before yeah. you like find the courage. Um, yeah. I was really moved this week Um a couple of people um, came out to me um, mm. and they chose to do so because I was a safe person. Yeah. Um, and I had another, another person and we just had a phone call. We just kind of, I just kind of listened. Um, I've never met her, but 
she knew I'd be a safe person to tell her story to. And, you know, I'm just a podcaster and I'm not going to be able to take everybody's phone calls, but, you know, yeah. two of these people were people from kind of my extended circle and, um, and this third one was somebody that I really felt moved to be there for. But, you know, sometimes you can find people in the strangest of places that will just be able to kind of affirm you. It might be a mm-hmm. conversation you strike up in a cafe and you never see that person again, but you can Absolutely. notch up that experience to, hey, that was nice, you know, or, mm-hmm. um, you know. More it, of that. Yeah, it doesn't have to be big and deep and meaningful in the beginning if you need to mm-hmm. work up to that point. Um, the the body stuff is really interesting. I am looking at the time. We do need to wrap up this interview, but... Um, <sighs> We were taught, a lot of us were taught in evangelicalism that, that our bodies were evil, that they couldn't be trusted, that we yep. needed to put to death the the things of the flesh and we took that to yeah. mean that we couldn't trust our bodies. Um, so relearning that you in fact can takes time, takes mm-hmm. intentional work, takes some somatic psychotherapy sometimes. Yep. Um, it, it takes, you know, be kind to yourself as you embark on that journey and, and get the help that you need because it's a journey Whew, for anyone, whether they've escaped abuse or just escaped purity culture or, you know, like it yeah. takes a while. It takes Absolutely. a while. So, um, yeah, any last advice before I ask you to introduce yourself? <laughs> um, I would just say for anyone listening, be kind to yourself. Yeah. Um, there's, I mean, I'm really thankful for, for podcasts and spaces that are offering safe spaces for deconstruction, Mm. um, because the church, I mean, the goodness about the church is people are drawn to it because there is something there. Yeah. Um, but the, the greater and the, the more lovely a thing is the greater the harm the greater the possible harm. Yeah. Uh, you can't have love without the possibility of just complete upheaval. Yeah. Um, and, and so to have spaces where people are finding safety to ask questions, to, to put away their faith um, and their beliefs and put it on the shelf and walk away for a period, um, like thankful for that. And so for those, those listening, just um, grace in the process um, to be kind that it is okay to ask those questions. It is okay to mistrust. um, But the hope that we come to find just like, but that's, that's not where life is. Mm. Um, So how do we, how do we refine the life that uh, the church has, but isn't offering? Um, How do we begin to, to, to trust our bodies, to, to trust that our wants and needs are worth it, um, are valuable, that we are worth love, but people have let us down. That is, that's really interesting because um, when I interviewed Tia Levings, when I interviewed Mark Henry Sandoz Paradella, both of them said, you know, when I asked them, well, what about your life now? And they both mm-hmm. said something to the effect of, I'm really living life to the fullest now. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm setting my intention towards really engaging with life and really kind of sucking yeah. the juice out of it. Um, that is a return to connection. And, mm-hmm. and that is a return to the realization that God is everywhere. Um, yeah. You know, your, your concept of God might change. My concept of God has changed entirely. Yeah. Um, and I, I don't even use the word God a lot of the time. I might say spirit or I might say mm-hmm the divine because mm-hmm. God is just so loaded with other meaning. Um, 
that for now I, I choose other words in my lexicon yeah. to represent that. But I guess uh, w- what is your, like, who are you now? You grew up in church. You went mm. to kind of Bible college. You've done all this study. Who are you now in contrast to that? And, and how do you have a spiritual life? How do you manifest that? Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, like you, I, I, and, and the others that you had just mentioned, I feel like my spiritual life is much more meaningful and depthful. Mm. Um, I mean, the interesting thing with my story is I never really had uh, church hurt in yeah. a sense. Um, I mean, again, like I named earlier, like my disruption with church in general was because my youth group and my youth pastors uh, were at the forefront in my mind of deconstruction because yeah. our youth group was all about community was yeah. all about don't just believe us because we're up here saying something like question yeah like they invited questions they invited yeah. doubt um so questioning faith and doubting what scripture said never was, was never a threat yeah um Not and yeah yeah and and so, which was always when it came to when deconstruction started kind of hitting the the interwebs, yeah. it was just like, oh, it's interesting to know that this wasn't permissible uh, <laughs> in, in a majority of uh, yeah. Christian sects. And so, um, I mean, my faith journey was always one that was founded in relationship, um, starting from the my youth group that I was in, uh, being disenchanted with church when I went to college because then I started to experience the passivity of church and with the focus on, hey, you come sit down, we're going to teach you something because the focus and primary purpose of church is to believe the right thing. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you're never going to see these people again the rest of the week. I'm just like, that doesn't feel true. Yeah. Um, and and so my faith journey has always just been this just like, okay, uh, I've experienced something and I, and I see inklings of it in the text. And so where my, because I mean, even growing up within a, a very like communal, progressive youth group, doesn't mean that the the theology that was being taught within the church and then throughout school and stuff wasn't still evangelical or Protestant and yeah. And so, but I just always held it loosely. Yeah. I was always just like, oh no, I believe these things until all of a sudden I was just like, wait a second, I believe this, but it seems to be contrary to what my body has been experiencing yeah. in, ter- in terms of like who is God and what is love and what is community. Yeah. Um, and then, so my journey has been kind of the space of like, how do we redeem the goodness of scripture? Yeah. Um, and, and redeem the goodness that is present in all of this um, yeah. because there's so much beauty here. Yeah. Um, but beginning to kind of see, Oh, here are areas that we kind of get hung up on. How have we missed it? Yeah. Um, and so, I mean, my, my current spirituality is one, like I host, a, a group called tap theology here in Seattle, mm-hmm. um, where we hang out, drink some beers and, and there's always a specific topic on hand that's like central to Christianity. And like, it's like, all right, like, here's the general understanding of this belief or this yep. topic, uh, where, what are all the questions? What are, what's all the doubt? What's all the different perspectives that you grew up in? Yeah. And this group is a lovely group that spans from atheist to like conservative Christian. Yeah. And yet we've somehow created a community where we feel safe being like, Hey, here's, here's my thoughts. Yeah. And the point of it isn't actually to be like, and this is what it means. It's just like, let's hold space for all of it to be here. And that um, is such a beautiful expression of 
our collective humanity, I think. Yeah. And it's so much nicer than the power distance that can exist between somebody, between us and somebody that we're trying to convert or, you know, evangelize. Yeah. And, and even yeah. that kind of creates a degree of mistrust. Um, I feel like we could talk for a long, long time, but um, yeah. I have so <laughs> many more questions. But uh, where can we find you on the interwebs? Uh, Twitter. I'm trying to be more active on it. I have a love-hate relationship with it. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll go in spurts. I'm like, all right, I'm going to be active on it. And I'm like, this is way too tiring. I do yeah. not understand how people are active on Twitter. But I'm, oh. I'm active sometimes. I'm dormant others. Um, <laughs> but yeah, follow me on Twitter. Uh, it's uh, at The Denler. The Denler. The Denler. T-H-E-D-E-N-L-E-R. Excellent. Follow the Denler on Twitter. We'll convince you to come across to the gram eventually, I'm sure. But uh, anyway, um, thank you so much. Uh, I got a lot out of this conversation. Um, and I think the, the point of having a podcast like Unchurchable is to expand our thinking. Um, yeah. And this has been the biggest kind of mind bender slash game changer for me in a while. So thank you so mm. much for reaching out. Thank you for your time. And uh, well, I'm yeah. appreciative of the space that you've created. And uh, <sighs> thanks for having me on it. It's been an absolute pleasure. I'm Kit Kennedy and this is Unchurchable.